You're listening to the Wanderlust Swingers Podcast with Aussie hosts Kate and Daryl. If you're curious about exploring your sexuality or the swinging, hot wifing and non-monogamous lifestyle, you've definitely come to the right podcast. Or maybe you just love travel adventures. Either way, we share our personal, sometimes juicy, sexy stories as well as swingers club and event reviews, interviews with other sassy people and of course our global swinging adventures. We try to bring you a look into the diverse lifestyle that the swinging and non-monogamous community has. We hope you enjoy. Now Let's get into the episode. G'day everyone and welcome back. Today we are going to be talking about herpes simplex virus, HSV. We're going to talk about STI disclosure and this is part of Swingers Health Volume 3. Another fantastic guest on my show today, I have Courtney Brame, who is a sexual and mental health advocate for people struggling with their positive herpes status. Diagnosed with a virus himself in 2013, he stumbled through the stigma from all sides, including communication with healthcare providers, potential sexual partners, family, friends, and most importantly, his relationship to himself. So I'm just going to give a quick welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us, Courtney. Thank you so much for having me. And I know I mentioned this to you earlier, but the opportunity to come and speak at the Libertine event that was in Portland. That was really amazing. And I'm very grateful for that opportunity because yeah, like I said, it showed me that this is something that people value. And I think that I've struggled with (laughs) uh, the work I do being seen as valuable. So this was a very validating opportunity for me. Thank you, Kate. No, thank you. We are so happy that you joined us and for everybody listening. So Courtney was actually one of our amazing presenters at the Libertine Events Fantasy event that we had in Portland. And, you know, we were really happy to have you along because talking about these things openly and authentically for me is valuable. So I know that you, you're you sort of saying like, this is great, you know, actually people find value in it. And they, and they truly do, Courtney. You know, our listeners there at the physical event, and I'm sure listeners today are going to be feeling Really glad that we're having these open conversations. And on that fact, for anyone who doesn't know, Courtney also has a podcast and it's called Something Positive for Positive People, whopping 290 episodes by the time this comes out or probably even more. And it's now turned into a not-for-profit organization, free support resources for people navigating all aspects of herpes stigma. So today we're going to roll through talking all about herpes, disclosure, everything, and Courtney's own personal journey. So I really hope that you guys get something out of it and we're going to come and bring you along for the ride today. But Courtney, maybe as we get started, so people know a little bit more about you before we kind of dig into this really important but quite massive topic, how do you identify? Are you non-monogamous? Have you been in a non-monogamous relationship before? Like, give us give us the tea. As far as identification, I am non-monogamous. I've been practicing non-monogamy since 2020, March of 2020. And we all know what happened around that time. Prior to that, I had been in all monogamous relationships. I remembered being in relationships and having desires to be with other people, but I didn't know that that was something that was possible because if I wanted to be with someone else, then whoever it was that I was with would take that as uh, something against them. Um, or even being desired by other people. If they were to see a waitress flirting with me or somebody at the bar, uh, if they're like too far away from me at the time and someone sees that as an opening to get closer, like I had exes who would always notice other people flirting with me before I ever would. 
And then they'd be mad at me. And I was just like, wow, you know, what is this? And in 2017, I would say is when I was introduced to the idea of non-monogamy. As far as I've known, you know, most of the marriages that I've seen growing up around me hadn't worked out. Um, My parents weren't together since I was a baby, you know, as early as I can remember. It was normal for me to go to my dad's place on weekends. My friends in my neighborhood growing up, most of them also saw their father on weekends. My grandparents divorced on both sides. And I remember thinking to myself, I see these relationships end and it ends because of cheating, you know? So if cheating's removed from the table, then that is going to help me with maintaining a long-term successful relationship. And as I got older and as I started to listen to podcasts and dive into information about non-monogamy and relationships in general, I began to see that it wasn't the cheating necessarily, it was the lying. And then as you get deeper to that, it was like the lying was actually a deception, not just to the other person, but a deception to the person and their true desires, what they need, like lying to themselves. In order to answer your question, non-monogamous, and this is because of a lot of just self-reflection on myself, like it's an intentional thing. I'm single and dating. So you're just out there in these streets educating people about diagnosis, disclosing your status, knowing your status, and also non-monogamy. You're just like the mecca of information out there, moving state to state to state, slowly letting everybody know what's up. I, I love that. Before we get into the the first segment today, which is going to be about information and the diagnosis, the second segment, we're going to start talking about our stigmas and management and everything. So we've got some great stuff here for you guys. Courtney, I I didn't tell you this because I wanted it to be a surprise. After the volume one of the Swingers Health uh, episode, where we did talk about STIs and testing and all of that, we actually received a a voice message. And I I want to play it with for you because normally, I mean, I preach this all over my social media and I'm sure you do too. And I thought it would be a great intro to actually play this person's response to listening to that episode. Thank you so much for this week's episode and bringing awareness community regarding sexual health and tested appropriately. There's a lot of nomers in our regarding how you should be tested and how often you should be. And this episode was fantastic at covering all of them. I would like to add one thing to this message and... There's a lot of folks who get tested and when they're talking about their test results, they talk about that they're being clean. And that would imply that when something comes back positive in our test results, that we are somehow then dirty. That couldn't be farther from the truth. We're doing what we can to stay healthy. By being tested, uh, we are then considered that we are tested. And we can share those results if we want to. But it does not mean that we're dirty if something comes back that needs to be treated. So. Appreciate your your episode and what you guys do for lifestyle. Be well. Thank you so much. Do you love that? I mean, I like I said, I preach it on social media. I know that you would too, man. And when I got it, I was like, damn it, I can't believe I didn't say that in the episode. But yeah, it's not a matter of clean and dirty. It's a you know, it's a matter of how do you disclose. We'll talk about disclosing later. But it's a matter of here is my test results, and this came back positive or, or negative, right? That's it. Yeah. You know, and it's a responsible thing to know your status. So if we look at it like a responsibility thing where people are on top of their status or on top of their routine testing, you know, there's no clean or dirty to that. Right. Everyone who is communicating and in the realm of communication is being responsible. 
you know, we're not dirty when we get a cold. We're not dirty if we get the flu. Right. It's just we have a virus. We are positive. We have a change in status. We have a condition now. We're positive. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Yeah, I loved that. As soon as as soon as I got that voicemail through Courtney, I was like, I'm going to play that on the on, on the episode where because I, I knew I was interviewing you already. I'm like, I'm going to play that for Courtney. I know he's going to love it. So let's talk about the the information and the diagnosis. It is estimated, and this came from the CDC guys. It is estimated that four billion one hundred ninety one million people around the world have some form of herpes. So that sixty seven percent have HSV one, and thirteen percent have HSV two. It's a very common STI. It is not curable, but it is absolutely treatable. So this is what we're going to talk about: information, diagnosis. We're going to dig deep. And we're going to start just asking Courtney a bunch of questions. These questions actually came from within our community. So I just want to give a shout out to everybody who sent me questions in. I really appreciate your willingness to be open and transparent and your interest in learning something as well. So kudos to all you guys, but let's jump into it. So what are the main factors that affect transmission from one person or another? And what are the best ways to perhaps mitigate those? Herpes is transmitted by skin-to-skin contact. You are at greatest risk when you have physical symptoms of transmitting the virus to another person. Another person is at a great risk of contracting the virus if their immune system is compromised in various shapes or forms. So the best way to minimize that potential of risk is for the person who is positive to really communicate and have a connection with their body to know, okay, I'm having symptoms, physical, or maybe I know that I'm under a lot of stress, particularly at this time of year, maybe because of busy season at work or lack of sleep. Uh, Diet could be off uh, from being consistent. Maybe they haven't been on top of their physical health and there's things that are affecting their mental health. I believe that all of these things do contribute to a person having physical symptoms. Now, by that logic, if you are having physical symptoms and you are the most uh, vulnerable to passing or an outbreak, then you are most vulnerable to passing the virus onto another person. So uh, going back to what I said, I do for something positive for positive people, you know, by talking about people's lived experiences with this virus and bringing that into sex education. I think that what we do is we set a foundation for people being able to communicate and know like, okay, here are the things that contribute to what you should know if you're going to move forward with me as someone who does have herpes. And people who don't have herpes will have been introduced to it early enough to know what questions to ask, you know, about a person's frequency of outbreaks. And we'll probably talk more about this, um, like you said, when we get into the disclosure piece. But as far as minimizing the risk, yeah, it's going to be um, knowing your body, knowing your symptoms. And a lot of people are asymptomatic meaning they don't typically express symptoms. I am one of those people. I've had three outbreaks over the last 10 years. The first one was the first one. The second one was under extreme stress. I was living in a new city. I had just gotten fired from my job. I didn't have people or family around me to help. So I had to get that figured out. And then uh, the most recent time was in 2021 when I had these cans of if Sprite and Hawaiian Punch had a baby, these super sugary drinks, and I couldn't get enough of them. And lo and behold, just a couple of days later, looking at that as the only X factor of my routine, I ended up having an outbreak. So uh, looking at these things and knowing what the factors are, I've been more mindful to just 
just recalibrate myself and make sure that I exercise on a regular basis, that I'm getting enough sleep, that I'm taking care of my mental health, and that my nutrition is somewhat on point. So those are all really, really great answers. And it actually leads me very well into another community question, which was, is there a time someone is most likely to shed or transmit other than the obvious outbreak? So you just spoke a lot there about maybe changes in your own health, you know, like stress. Absolutely. My God, the amount of things stress does to our body is just insane. But uh, are there any other things that in terms of transmitting other than other than an outbreak? People talk about like transmissions through objects or sharing drinks and things like that. And I think that those are very extreme cases. You know, if someone has an open sore on their mouth and you like are rubbing a spoon on the cold sore and then you hurry up and put it on the another person's lip or genitals, right? Like these are very extreme cases, I'm sure, that people speak to where like, I got herpes from sharing a drink or from smoking a cigarette or uh, some weed after somebody. We shared utensils. I don't know precisely what the science is on that. I can tell you that even being someone who has genital herpes, I've had partners where we've consented to not using barriers. And these are partners who don't have herpes themselves, and I've not passed it on to them. And in 2021, I conducted a survey of people in the something positive for positive people, a herpes community of 1,149 people. And one of the questions that I asked was, to your knowledge, have partners consented to sex without barriers with you? And more than 70% of people said yes. And in addition to that, another question was, have you passed herpes on to a partner? I think it was upper 70s or 80% of people who had said, no, they have not passed herpes on to a partner. And I think that this is a very interesting statistic because it doesn't speak to like transmission rates or like you can reduce transmission to 1%. What does that mean exactly? One out of every hundred times we have sex, one out of every hundred strokes, like one out of every hundred what? But to see that people have had partners who don't have herpes and who have consented to sex without barriers, and then to see that this many people have not gone on to transmit the virus, I think that that's a much more useful statistic to be able to use if we're able to you know, prove that in a clinical setting and get like the CDC stamp of approval. Wow, that's that's all really, really interesting. And I guess we, we've mentioned a lot about, um, you know, HSV1, HSV2. But uh, my next question, perhaps I might want to start with a precursor. Can you maybe ex- just really briefly explain what HSV1 is and what HSV2 is? And then the question from the community is, if you have one type, does it protect you from all others? Uh, to answer the first question, the main difference between HSV1 and HSV2 is location. So I asked a doctor, one of my first podcast episodes, I was like, you know, why do we call, why do we differentiate? If herpes is herpes, why do we call one type one, type two? And the short answer was that we don't want to associate an STI with children. And typically when people get HSV, Orally, we will by default call that type one cold source fever blisters and give it these cute names because, again, we just don't want to associate kids with uh, any sex or sexually transmitted infections. Despite these, the youth growing into adults that are entering romantic relationships and having skin to skin contact, whether it be 
kissing or oral sex and then passing this on genitally a lot of people are in the healthcare field will give a visual diagnosis say oh if this looks like herpes it must be type 2 because it's genital right and there's not that communication about okay well type one can still be transmitted genitally, which we are seeing many more cases where type one genitally is emerging. And that's when these people are being tested. I remember when I was diagnosed, I was looked at uh, visually. I had symptoms on my genitals and I was told this is herpes type two because of its location. 10 years later, I go to Planned Parenthood and they tell me that they offer free uh, STI testing or for HSV included. And I went, huh, I know that I have type two, but it would be interesting to see if I also have type one yet. And so I got, I didn't ask for a testing for type two, which is, this is an interesting piece because it came back positive for type one. And so now I'm like, oh, well, was I diagnosed, you know, just visually because of location and told that this is type two? Because type two is typically or primarily genital associated. Type one is primarily orally associated. Keep in mind that these two can be transmitted the other way. Type one genitally is becoming more common. Type two orally is not as common. So for myself, Initially, I would only have sex with people who also had genital HSV2. I was a big herpes snob in that sense. And then over time, you know, after talking to people and realizing, oh, there's not a difference based on the experiences that people are sharing with me. So why not? And then it just became a matter of, okay, I have genital herpes and that's the conversation. So for me, the way that I navigate having this virus and communicating with others about it is I have genital herpes. This is the location of it because I've also noticed that there's a difference in how people receive the location of herpes. People I disclose to don't care type one, type two. They care genital herpes or cold sores because they have such two completely different, they have two such completely different connotations If it's oral, then you had it for a while, you got it harmlessly. But then if it's uh, genital, then you did something wrong in order to get this. And I often say like the stigma to herpes is not even about herpes. It's about sex because if we get oral herpes, we assume that it happened in childhood. We assume that it happened harmlessly, right? But then when you throw sex into the mix, you know, and genital contact, it becomes something completely different. So to answer your question, the type one, type two thing to me and to, as I have all of these conversations with people, I'm not seeing a difference in how people are responding to it when they get the diagnosis, because herpes is herpes. It's like, oh my God, I have herpes. And there are people out there who have been given a diagnosis who've not had any symptoms. So they don't even know where their location, where the location of their herpes is uh, for them to be able to quote, protect partners or to be able to disclose to partners and communicate what the needs are in order to minimize the potentiality of risks. Yeah, that's right. And I think, so we, I have a personal story here. I actually have a friend who has oral herpes on their genitals. So when they actually went in and got diagnosed initially, exactly to your point there, initially the person was like, oh, cause they went in during, they went in during their first ever outbreak and said, what the hell's going on? 
And the person said, oh, yep, you got genital herpes. Later to find out once the blood test results and everything came back, it was actually, yes, what would be classified as, you know, quote unquote, oral herpes, but on the person's genitals, which means that somebody had transmitted it from perhaps giving oral sex, you know, but I guess to this person, you know, if you have one type, does it protect you from the others? I mean, oh, I would say no. Uh, Courtney, would you say that, you you know, you wear a cape then and then you're, you know, impervious to getting other types of herpes? Early on when I was doing all of my intense research, what floated around, and this wasn't a credible resource, what floated around the herpes community was that if you have a type, then you're more resistant to the other type. And here's the thing about that, too, is that when you have herpes, your immune system is going to be keeping the virus at bay. So think about it like exercising. You've got little mini versions of yourself that are your immune system that is on the lookout for herpes because herpes is a tricky virus. We don't always know what triggers it. It can, it will lie dormant in the nervous system. Typically, if you have oral outbreaks, it goes to sleep in the nerves up at the top of your spine. And then if you have genital outbreaks, the virus typically will lie dormant, go to sleep uh, in the base of nerves in your spine. And it'll just come out to play when the opportunity presents itself. So just think about it. Like you've got a team of troopers in your body that are waiting for the herpes virus to come out and play and they get their time together. Maybe they duel but or, you know, like however you want to picture it. I like to picture it as like, you know, they're sparring, right? My immune system sparring with herpes and then herpes is like, all right, I had enough. And then it will go back into being dormant. But my immune system gets to stay on its toes, uh, not just for herpes, but because it's on its toes. You know, maybe I like to think that I don't get sick from other things or have as intense reactions to other things because of how herpes is keeping my immune system uh, active and giving it exercise in order to stay functioning optimally. In addition to the things that I do outside of that, because of my motivation to keep myself from getting herpes outbreaks, like again, managing stress, eating better than I normally had, and then um, being able to consistently exercise. And staying away from those ridiculous sugary drinks that you had in 2021. Oh, no, I'll like, I'll like have a sip of something like that. Like I very much more, I'm very mindful, like with alcohol as well, you know, drinking a margarita, right. Or going for six margaritas. Like I don't do things like that anymore. I'm much more mindful of what's in the food that I eat. Just because you said margarita and then you said, oh, two or six margaritas. Have you heard the margarita song on social media? No. What is it? I, I got I to play this for you, Courtney. I know I keep interrupting you with these little random tidbits, but uh, I think we're mates now. So, so I'm doing it. Give me one margarita. I'm going to open my leg. Give me two margaritas. I'm going to give you some head. Give me three margaritas. I'm going to put it in my puss. Give me four margaritas. I'm going to put it in my tush. Give me five margaritas. I'm going to get some fun. Give me five margaritas. I'm going to put it in your bone. <laughs> I love it. Oh, I love that. Uh, so one of the questions that we also got as well was describe the uptick in HSV one. What are your thoughts on that? More people are having oral sex, <laughs> you know, so this virus that we have gotten, you know, in childhood, like, or, you know, that we want to say people got in childhood or that they got from kissing, you know, with the uptick in people who are having sex, people are having more oral sex. I don't know many people who use barriers for oral sex. So naturally, there's going to be more oral exposure. Um, I think that a lot of people's risk tolerance for oral sex is significantly different than their risk tolerance for uh, genital to genital contact. 
So we're just seeing people's greater risk tolerance for oral sex just means more opportunities for exposure to oral herpes genitally. That's right. And if you go into any swingers club or a swingers event on any given Sunday, you know, it's very rare to see somebody using a barrier, i.e. condoms or dental dams when they're actually performing oral sex. I think generally speaking, we are having more oral sex, particularly as more and more people start to use their voice, communicate what they want, you know, exploring some of their own personal physical desires. Uh, you know, more people are even exploring their sexuality. And so I think you're definitely right there. There is definitely more oral happening, I think, than maybe if we went back 30 to 40 years ago when people weren't really using their words and asking for what they wanted in the bedroom, for sure. I'm going to put you on the hot seat, Courtney. So the hot seat for us is something that I like to put my guests on, uh, watch the polls. And it's basically where I'm going to ask you something that might be a little bit uncomfortable or something a little bit, you know, sideways. Uh, this one's not too bad, actually, I don't think. So my question is, how do you feel about the forums and the dating apps? And before, I think you said you were a bit of a herpes snob. Uh, the forums and the dating apps that are specifically for people who have positive HSV results, do you think these apps help the community or are they furthering the stigma by trying to keep everybody away from what, you know, quote unquote, general public and, you know, non-positive herpes people have? All right. I have an evolving opinion. Yes, bring it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So my evolving opinion is this. When I needed it, it was there and it served a purpose. I think that the need for it was for me to be willing and able to put myself out enough to expand my comfort zone. Like before, you know, when a person gets a herpes diagnosis, they want to keep this to themselves. And then it's like, okay, I want to have sex. So I probably should talk to a person who I want to have sex with and tell them this, right? So you tell one person and then like, that's kind of practice. You have new found perspective to shape your experience with, right? What the positive forums and dating apps allow is for you to get comfortable, you know, talking about this to other people, right? And on a positive, on the most positive trajectory, you're in community with others who understand what you might be experiencing in your dating life, with your symptoms, with uh, just the, the mental mind fuck that a herpes diagnosis is for most people when they first get it. And you're able to also still get your needs met in a way that is easy is the best word that I can think of. Right. But it's difficult to put yourself out there in that space. Right. So these are some of the positives is that you get that practice of connecting with people again. You get the practice of saying out loud, you know, things that you are experiencing. And this is a positive. On the other end of that, there's the coping piece. It's like, OK, I am going to never pass this on to anybody else. I am going to only date people who have herpes. And a person like that will go in and they will date and find themselves in connection or relationship or situations with people who they may have nothing in common with except for the fact that they have herpes and the compatibility isn't there and they're really trying to force a relationship or a connection with someone that it just isn't going to work with. I think that in turn, like this community, this offering can offer too much of a safe space to where people will be interacting in the real world and not be able to interact with the real world simply because 
They're like, oh, I'm only going to date people within this community. I have this community to fall back on. I'm not going to be myself out and about in the real world. And I'm going to close myself off from genuine connection and opportunities to be with someone who might be more of a fit for me, all because of one's prioritization of this herpes virus and thinking that it is, in fact, limiting what their options are. So I think that when you are intentional about going into these dating apps, if it's okay, I want to connect with people who also have herpes. I think that this is easier. You know, the healthy way of of, uh, going into it is just knowing what it is that you're going in for and then being able to get that because it does present an opportunity for you to get what it is that you want and what you need. It may not be as convenient as, you know, approaching people out in public and where you are consistently visiting or places that you may go to eat or do hobbies, um, explore your interests, but they're there and it eliminates a very huge barrier to connection, relationships and sex that, you know, people really struggle to work through. I do believe that these groups, the admins of them, the people who run the dating sites, they can be much more involved in supporting people with navigating stigma. But if you look at it, you know, they're invested in this existing. Something positive for positive people is always going to be relevant. I hate to say that, but my mission is to make myself irrelevant. Like I don't want people to have to come here and try and figure out why there isn't a cure for this or, you know, run away from what herpes represents for themselves. I want for people to be able to, you know, have access to the information, understand the communication components, and then be able to navigate the dating space, navigate the stigma in a way that works best for them. So I do think that these forums and dating sites sort of make people feel like this is your choice, not that you have choice here or other avenues that you can go down, but this one is here for you. And I think that that makes all the difference between perpetuating stigma and then um, trying to give people the tools and resources they need in order to minimize or dissolve their own internalized stigma. Yeah, I can see how having having those dates with somebody who may, you know, if you've just been diagnosed perhaps and somebody who's been, perhaps been diagnosed a couple of years before you, I can imagine going out on those dates and having those com- very transparent conversations. I would, You know, you would learn a lot, right? You know, if you're terrified to tell somebody about your status, I imagine that those people would be maybe a little bit more practiced at it, can definitely help you feel comfortable, the terminology to use, what's best practice, what's worked for them. You know, that, that sounds like I hadn't thought about that. And now that you're bringing it up, I'm like, that makes absolutely total sense. Courtney, my last one for this first segment is if you could travel through time, go back to 2013, Courtney, when you were first diagnosed, what would you say to that that version of Courtney now, knowing what you know in 2023 versus 2013? Ooh, I would definitely shift the priority from my herpes diagnosis, how this is going to impact my relationships, how it's going to impact my sex life, how it's going to externally do all these things for me. And I would tell myself, yo, this is actually an opportunity for you to explore your connection to yourself. Herpes, yes, uh, presented the challenges physically uh, for connecting because, you know, we do live in a very, I don't want to call it generally sex positive or sex negative. Um, You know, we have the sex positivity movement, but I think that 
what we have is more of a sex negative society that makes sex positivity relevant. And in the sex avoidant society, I think I keep saying negative and avoidant, but what I mean to say is a sex avoidant society that often just defaults to condoms as the end all be all of safe sex. I know that prior to my diagnosis, what I would do is just ask, do I need this condom? And do I need this condom was me asking, are you on birth control? Not do I need to worry about STI simply because the people who taught me sex education said that if someone had an STI, that there would be an odor, there would be such discomfort or embarrassment that this person wouldn't want to have sex. So I thought, hmm, I would know if someone had an STI. And that is not how that works at all. So, you know, I would just tell myself, like, use this as an opportunity earlier than what it took for me to explore, you know, what sex meant for me and how to experience pleasure in relationships and being able to look into like alternative, not just like alternatives as in going on to the dating sites with people who have herpes, but also just being willing to expand myself and know that there are other people who are sort of in the vanilla spaces or who are in day-to-day life who are also dealing with this and this might not be impacting their lives Um, but maybe they're also starving for connection with a good person so focus on being a good person focus on you know doing what you can to minimize the risks of symptoms and transmission and go on about your life like i Definitely was one person who I was the kind of person who knew, Okay, well, I'm not going to wait for a cure. Like people have been talking about hoping for a cure since I first heard the word herpes. You know, and I look up now, 10 years of my life have passed. And had I waited on a cure, I don't know that I would have developed into this confident person that I am now who loves my life, who's doing something that I'm passionate about for work who is also having the best sex that I've ever had in my life. Damn, that was powerful. That was lovely. Thank you for sharing all of that. We're going to start digging into removing some of the stigma, management, disclosure, all of the stuff that I think is really, really important for us to understand And remembering as we're talking about this whole thing as well, it's uh, one part of this, yes, is definitely to disclose your status. And the other part of this is to be a willing recipient of that disclosure. And I'm sure probably Courtney's going to get into this, but let's do an intro here. So HSV has a lot of stigma attached to it, especially due to cold sores. And mentioned by Courtney even earlier is the, you know, as children, you know, we don't necessarily want to say it's an STI. And I definitely agree with that. The representation at school and on youth when I grew up was that coleslaws meant somebody was dirty. And I think this stigma is definitely carried through adulthood and can stop people from one, obtaining test results and asking about test results, and then two, uh, talking about their positive diagnosis. So that's what this section is going to be about. And we're just going to dig straight into this, Courtney. Best disclosure methods what do you say? When do you say it? You know, how do you want the person who's reciprocating to respond back to you? Let's talk about everything to do with disclosure. What people typically do commonly with disclosure is they hype themselves up to be able to just get the words out, right? I have herpes. When you tell someone I have herpes and that's it, there's this waiting period of 
you know, you just want to see how they're going to respond. And I think that a lot of people who are at this point are very early on, just maybe not experienced with having this conversation. And so it falls flat. You know, it's I have herpes and then they may not get the kind of positive response that they want because they're not communicating consistently with what it is that they need or how they feel about it. You're looking for the other person to give you some form of validation on how they feel about it to to show you how you should feel about it, right? And this is a mistake people make. People don't quite know how they feel about it or they're not prepared for uh, being able to tell someone else they have it. And yeah, sometimes you want to just rip the bandaid off and go in, but also you really want to have a little bit more than just, I have herpes and then wait on the person to accept that or reject that because they might even be hearing this for the first time and they don't know how to respond. So now you got two confused people just kind of staring at each other across from the dinner table who don't know what to do next. Right. So for the person who is disclosing their status, the hands down best way that I've experienced disclosing and I've been practicing this myself and I've been teaching other people this as well um, in my workshops and in my one-on-one calls with people is to use the STARS method. So STARS is an acronym uh, created by one of my board members, Dr. Evelyn Molina Dacker, who uses uh, the first S is STI status. The T is for turn-ons. The A is for avoids. The R is relationship intention. And then the second S is for safety, right? So this acronym doesn't have to be done in order and it doesn't have to be done in a very cookie cutter way, but it can be done in such a way that it's sexy. I remember uh, the first time that I ended up using this, I had just gotten back from presenting with her. We were talking about disclosure and herpes and we were talking about stars. So I had some flyers just sitting on my table and I had brought someone back to my place. Uh, She works in sex education as well. So she was very receptive. She's like, oh, what's this? Let's have this talk. And so we just went back and forth down the letters. And with STI status, you know, we got to share uh, not just I have herpes, but it was, all right, well, here's how often I get tested, typically every three months or between unprotected partners. Mm unbarriered partners. I'm really trying to get people out of saying unprotected and start to say just barriered or unbarriered or not using barriers. And she reciprocated, just saying, okay, well, here's the last time I was tested. I was tested for these things in these locations uh, because this is the kind of sex that I have with partners. Um, Typically with new partners, I like to wear barriers until that is negotiated later down the road. Now, the T for the turn-ons is where things can get a little spicy, right? So here's where you might talk about some things that get you in the mood, things that get you over the edge, thing, ways that you like to be communicated with and talked to. I have sex with women, and some women are queer, into kink, some have trauma. And so this is a place where I learned the difference between like good job and good girl. Right. Because the good girl piece could be something that is invalidating to that person's identity. Maybe they don't feel, you know, like super feminine, girly. So instead of saying good girl, I need to know to say good job. And, you know, the intent behind this and knowing that little thing can be the difference between a positive, pleasant encounter between two people. And then someone just like that can completely ruin the rest of the experience to have their identity invalidated by saying something like good girl. Right. So and that kind of ties into the avoids, you know, don't talk to me this way. Don't touch me 
this way. Uh, don't do this thing to me. I don't like this, right? So we're talking about turn-ons and avoids, and this is where you know we're setting boundaries for the interaction. With the R, relationship intention, I often tell people who have herpes to just lead with this because if you want something short-term and the other person wants something long-term, then you know that right away. So you may not even have to get to the point of having the SCI status conversation, and this is one less person to have to disclose to because it's not going to get to that point because disclosure fatigue is a real thing. It is emotionally draining, taxing, exhausting, uh, prepping for it, getting yourself into the space of being able to disclose or willing to disclose your herpes status to someone and then dealing with the during interaction and then the aftermath of having to part ways and then go through the wedding game right so you can lead with relationship intention with all of this and see if you're on the same page so if you are on the same page you know here's where you'll want to share oh you know i'm monogamous or i'm non-monogamous or this is my style of dating uh this is what i'm looking for this is what i'm available for here's how i see us fitting into each other's lives and then you give the other person an opportunity to share that as well and this becomes sort of a co-created whole interaction between each other uh, that everyone should be, you know, having this conversation in some way or another. And I think that the unsuccessful relationships, this conversation isn't had because there's assumptions on one or both sides about what the relationship is. So what the STARS framework does is it creates this foundation of transparency and it removes assumptions through just conscious communication about what you want with a person and we co-create our relationship dynamic with all of these things so the last s is for safety safety is not just physical safety of you know okay i'm going to be meeting you i'm coming over to your place i need to let someone know where i'm at let you know that someone knows where i'm at so that i'm not going to get murdered at your house right but with me um and this was something that came up in the live in-person event i didn't think much of it but i said like i am someone who also dates outside my race and so if i'm out in public with a white woman and we're in a relationship and we have like a disagreement and she starts to change her body language or her verbal communication volume goes up, these are things that we need to be mindful of, especially in public settings, because of just the climate that we're in with Black men, with interracial dating even, and just like whatever stereotypes may come with that. So there are these things with safety that extend beyond just physical safety, but also like a social safety. And this is where you can also communicate, okay, aftercare. You know, if we do have a scene, if we play, if we have sex, uh, we go on a date, I would like for you to communicate with me or I would like to cuddle or I need space or I'll call you or just make sure you call me and check in on me. This is where safety comes in. Now, all of this is it's not something you have to go back and forth on, but it's things that can generally just come up in conversation organically if we are willing to have these conversations and if we're practiced in having these conversations. Just on that safety aspect too, Courtney, as you were saying all of that, something that popped into my mind, uh, particularly, you know, let's bring it back to non-monogamous couples. If you're out in public and there's, say, two couples on a date and you're in your local town or where they're from or something like that, it's always a good discussion topic, for, you know, in, as it pertains to safety to say how, how much can we touch in public, you know, because if you're at a local bar, 
and maybe you've swapped seats and you're all over each other and then all of a sudden they're, I don't know, church minister, auntie, uncle, cousin, whatever, comes into the pub, um, you know, that's something that I always like to ask people too. Like if we're going to be walking down the street together, you know, do you want any kind of, you know, physical touching, et cetera, or are we just trying to, you know, staying inside our lane kind of thing, depending on how they feel, how out they are. So definitely safety. So again, guys, stars, STI, turn on, avoid relationship intention and safety Courtney, so when you do disclose to people, what would be the ideal response? So if we were out on a date and, you know, you said your relationship intention is X and we're good to go, so you're about to disclose to me and you do disclose, what would be the ideal way that I might respond back to you? Gratitude and curiosity. When someone discloses to you, you know, thank them because this for many people is a challenging conversation. They don't know how you're going to respond. And typically with this disclosure, it's an invitation for intimacy and emotional connection because it's a vulnerable thing to do. And I understand that being on the other side of that, especially if you're someone who is dating, you're exploring your options, right? And then this person comes to you and they say, I have herpes and you could get it from me if we move forward in the way that you want to move forward. This makes you, the person I'm disclosing to, have to think more long-term where you may not have had to think about that before. And that's a vulnerable thing to have to do. And typically in the way that a lot of people date, you know, we kind of avoid emotions. So it makes it even more difficult because if we do want to have casual relationships or date around and hook up and maybe not go down the path of a serious relationship, this puts us in the realm of, do I see myself with you long-term, right? If you're on the receiving end of someone's disclosure, because I mean, I I can't sit up here and deny the fact that that's going to be the first thing a lot of people think. What if I get herpes and then bam, you've got these rushes of thoughts about now I'm going to have to have this conversation with people, or I'm going to have an, any internalized stigma or thoughts about this virus up until this point now become active within you. And it's directed at you. Like you are directly in the eye of this storm and you have to envision what your life is going to look like far out into the future. So all of this is probably going to be going on in your head, but the default response is going to be, oh, thank you. You know, well, how are you managing it? And just the cure, the question that comes after the thank you. Thank you for telling me. I know that that probably wasn't easy for you to do. Can you tell me, you know, what this means for you? What does this mean for us? Um, if we do move forward, you know, are there things that we can do to minimize the risk of transmission? And maybe you can even demonstrate a little bit of your own knowledge about the virus. And you can go, oh, okay, well, um, is it genital? Is it oral? Is it type one? Is it type two? Do you take daily meds for it or do you just take it during outbreaks? Do you get outbreaks a lot? And any of these questions that follow gratitude, because, again, you're thanking them and that thank you is something that's going to alleviate a lot of anxiety from them. And then your curiosity gives them the opportunity to share, you know, how confident and comfortable they are with their diagnosis, because someone tells me, you know, I think if someone were to tell me I have this condition, I would like to know that they're knowledgeable about their experience with it prior to me moving forward because I don't have anything to go off of in that moment. I mean, I can pull out my phone and Google or we can end the date when we end the date and then I go take my time to learn more about it. But I think that it's best to have that present in person back and forth about 
what this means for us moving forward. Like, what does this mean for you and your body? And how does this affect me and us in a relationship? So if you are playing with somebody who's disclosed their positive, so now you've disclosed, we've had the conversation, I've led with gratitude and then led with curiosity, we're moving to the bedroom, what would be the best ways that we might be able to try and minimize chances of transmission between the two of us? Is there any kind of best practices surrounding that? Yeah, best practice would be, you know, you've already done the communication, so that in itself is STI minimization, right? And then the next thing is going to be barriers. I mean, good hygiene as a default, right? I don't think that good hygiene gets enough credit, you know, coming out of what's been going on 2020, 2021, 2022 uh, with the pandemic is what we've learned is that COVID, the virus, you know, we want to minimize spread by what? Washing our hands. Hand sanitizer sales went through the roof. Uh, so, you know, herpes is a virus. So it's just a matter of, you know, maintaining and practicing good hygiene, you know, whatever that routine looks like for the person and then going into it in order to minimize as best we can. Of course, we want to just use barriers uh, for the area, whether that be condoms, dental dams. You know, there's going to be a risk, and even if we wear condoms. So it's important to me that the person is aware that there is always going to be a risk, even if we do wear condoms, even if I don't have an outbreak. So that communication and getting the other person to really fully consent to the experience that minimizes a lot of the other uh, components that are necessary when going into the bedroom. I've disclosed to people who've also had herpes. I've disclosed to people who have not had herpes. And, you know, even in those cases, sometimes we were willing and able to move forward without barriers after the discussion. And would those precautions or for lack of a better term, if you're trying to you know, minimize chances of transmission because you've just disclosed it, would they be any different? If you are if you're playing with somebody who has an unknown status, which, as we said before, you know, a lot of people don't know they have um, HSV, maybe they're non-symptomatic, these sorts of things. So what you just said there about cleanliness, hygiene, having the barrier conversation, having, you know, just consent discussions, really, and making sure that people are super enthusiastically yes about it. Does that change if you're playing with somebody who has an unknown status? I mean, I think, yes, I normally have like a three to six month rule for partners testing you know like i won't have unburied sex with someone who hasn't been tested in the last three to six months so someone i was having sex with consistently it had been a few months that we were having sex it's like hey you know if we're having the most sex with each other why don't we not wear condoms and we agreed to that and i knew that she hadn't been tested in eight months so she was like oh okay well you know i don't have any symptoms i'm fine blah 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 and i was like all right i'm okay with this lo and behold i get chlamydia go on to learn and this is a whole story but i go on to learn that you know the most common symptom of an sti is no symptoms at all so she hadn't been tested in eight months you know there's no telling how long she might have had chlamydia or anything going on she just was like oh I apologize. I didn't know. So she got tested and treated and found out that she too was positive for chlamydia and we were able to move forward from there. So now I am definitely like <laughs> I broke my three to six month rule for that instance. Um, but now 
you know, if someone hasn't been tested in more than six months, let's say, then I'm not going to move forward without a barrier. That's just what I feel comfortable with. Yeah, that's right. And everybody needs to understand more about this. And as we talk about it and remove the stigma around it and people start to think about it more, research it more, have these conversations either with themselves or with their primary partner or extended partners, you know, I think that's where you start to really understand, well, what is your risk tolerance? Because as you start to become a little bit more sexually active, you really just kind of jump in. You don't really have these thoughts maybe as a, um, you know, late teens, early 20s person that's becoming sexually active. You know, you just kind of jump in. And I don't think it's until you may be a little bit more mature that you start to go, okay, hold on a second. What does this actually mean? What does this mean for me? How do I feel about it? You know, and what is my, my risk tolerance? So, As we get ready to lead out here, guys, please join me in thanking Courtney, who again is from Something Positive for Positive People. It's a not-for-profit. I'm going to leave the details in the show notes of the website here, which is spfpp.org. Please do go ahead and check that out. Again, as we mentioned earlier, lots of free resources on there, including 290 episodes of a podcast. And it's also the place where you can opt in to donate or join. If I'm not wrong, Courtney, you have a Patreon as well. So you can either leave a one-time donation, which is tax deductible again, if you're in the United States, or you can um, subscribe and support Courtney on a, on a month to month basis. So thank you very much, Courtney, for joining us on the show today. We really appreciated it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And again, just thank you for the opportunity and giving me space to share this information. I think that as it catches on, what we'll begin to do is see that there's just the normalization of the initiating of these conversations. I think a lot of people who do have a positive status feel the burden of having to disclose and also being the go-to person of having to initiate this conversation. So the more people who are aware of just the communication components um, and the stars talk, I think the better off everyone will be in terms of minimizing SCI transmissions, as well as encouraging disclosure and testing and treatment for uh, anyone who might come back positive. So thank you so much, Kate. Yeah, that's right. And everybody listening, you know, especially not people in non-monogamous relationships, please do continue to have these open and transparent conversations. Have them with your primary partner, have them with your other partners in the lifestyle. I think talking about health in general, whether it be mental, physical or other, is going to continue to break down the societal stigmas that exist. So you know, if there is something going on that's even outside of STIs, it's not herpes related, but it's mental health related, it's other health related. These are the sorts of things that if we start talking about them more, people are going to be more receptive to having these conversations more gracious with gratitude, as Courtney said. So uh, let's keep up the good work and keep being transparent. And of course, you know, STI testing, you know, please do make sure that you're getting tested. It's been great. It's been really educational. Uh, Again, thank you for being transparent. Thank you for everything that you're doing for the community out there and supporting people. I'm sure sometimes it is a a thankless job, but really you're absolutely doing a a wonderful job and and just wanted to say thank you again. Thank you. All right, guys, that's been enough from us today. That has been volume three, very important topics, very important conversation. We're going to head out today and we'll see you on the next episode. Bye guys. Bye guys.